Welcome to Decision Space, the only podcast that takes place right here between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake. And I'm Brendan. Yeah, Brendan's back. (laughs) And today we are talking about Bruges, a 2013 game designed by Stefan Feld. But before any of that, Brendan... My man, how are you doing, the newest father on the Decision Space podcast? I'm doing so well. <laughs> this morning, I was I woke up. It's day seven, so Miller's been alive for a week now. And I will say, the first six nights, not much sleep. Last night, not much sleep. But when you double the amount of sleep, it's amazing. And he's just lovely and wonderful, and we're we're having the best time, like hanging out with him. And I don't know, it's great. I'm bliss in bliss. That's amazing to hear. Um, Yeah, we knew that this was something that was going to happen when we kind of dove into this project uh, and, you know, that it finally happened. It's just so amazing. I'm so happy for you all. Um, Congratulations. And it's amazing that you're able to to fit in uh, just an hour here to talk about a game. But yeah, you know, just overjoyed for you all. Thank you so much, Jake. I'm sort of amazed too. I didn't. We sort of d- didn't know if we'd be able to get it recording in. So I'm excited because I've been thinking about games a lot in my sleepless nights. Yeah, as we know in the Discord, as we're getting some kind of like uh, surprise treatises on on Brendan's thoughts over sleepless nights. So that that's been exciting <laughs> and very welcome. <laughs> so, uh, I mean. Uh, I think I, that kind of explains a little bit about where your mind is. Any Anything else you want to talk to us about before we hop into this game discussion? Honestly, I think that's, for me, sort of exactly where I'm at. Um, there's a lot on Bruges that's definitely top of mind that I'll be excited to, to get into. What about you? Do you have anything else top of mind? You know, I'll just say very briefly, I uh, played, I went to a game night the other day and played Iberian Gage, which mm. is uh, two, a two. wins... Yeah, so it's a, a winsome game that was uh, picked up, I guess, by Capstone. So it's got this like beautiful mm. production. Ian O'Toole. I, I said, I was like, well, I really like that cover art. And they're like, yeah, well, it's Ian O'Toole. And I was like, okay, so I guess that's just like the <laughs> most basic board gamer opinion ever. I didn't realize. <laughs> What's a winsome game, Jake? Just before you move on. Is that I just think- a publisher? I think it's a publisher that is like exclusively, or maybe not exclusively, but most famously known for these Cube Rails mm. series of games like Ride the Rails, Iberian Gage, Irish Gage, to gotcha. name a few. And then from what people were saying the other night, Capstone Games is picking up just a few of the that series. And specifically, they're picking up the ones that are supposed to be like playable in, in under an hour or something like that. So... That's awesome. I think what they're really good for is a real is an introduction to train games, um, as as it was for me, and specifically, you know, the kind of eighteen xx style games with companies and stocks, and you don't really own the trains as much as like you're investing in the company. Um, and yeah, I just had to say it was a really fun and interesting first game experience. It was kind of bewildering trying to to make decisions not exclusively based on like me the player but in looking at everyone's ownership shares and the different companies and what that meant and why i wanted to pay this one company to the other company and and it was 
there was just a lot of fun where it really felt like I was just taking money out of one of my pockets and putting it into the other pocket and somehow making more money out of it. So I felt like a big business guy. And all of a sudden I was making all this money and I won the game. I have no idea how it happened, uh, but it was exciting and a fun experience. That's awesome. And it, it there's already been rumblings for people in the Discord and just other people on BoardGameGeek asking us if we'll cover train games more in depth at some point. And I feel like given the nature of our podcast and their reputation with 18xx and others, like they have to come to the show at some point. And I think it's so great that you had such a good experience with your first one. And it's interesting how train games sort of decouple the like in a lot of the games we always talk about our choices and our decisions as a player affect the game state in a way that directly benefits us or directly harms our opponent. To sort of have train games really cloud that in a way that you're maybe affecting the game state and not knowing the consequences as clearly is really cool. Yeah, there there, there are some weird decision-making moments where it's like, I own some of this train, but not as much as somebody else. So I want to tank my own company (laughs) (laughs) so i'm just gonna build this train over here in the forest going to nowhere i kept making the joke i was like this is more of like a non-profit train you know it's probably (laughs) connecting some rural communities to some vitally needed resource so it's really a charitable thing what i'm doing and yes it just so happens to completely screw you over Um, but think of the people uh being being now connected uh, that thought there was no way the train would come through their little town. Yeah, it's just a train in the Pacific Northwest that goes to like some random corner of Washington. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that that was that's my initial thoughts on train games and, and a, a fun experience with Iberian Gage. Uh, before we get into our main discussion, pre-planners, uh, those of you who like to play the game ahead of us, uh, we I'll just tell you a couple games that we have coming up on our slate soon. We'll be covering Jaipur, the two-player game, uh, and we'll also be covering Villagers, a drafting game. You can play Jaipur online on Board Game Arena, and you can play Villagers on yukata.de. So check those both out. Uh, As I mentioned last week, I think our next episode will be uh, kind of a, a gateway game of sorts, where I'll be talking about the decisions in the sport of kickball. Uh, So I'm really excited about that. I've got an interview coming up with a couple of friends where we're going to talk about all the great decisions in kickball. So that's one I'm really looking forward to. So I think that'll be next week. So get out there, lace up those cleats and and, uh, kick some balls if you want. Amazing. That's so awesome. I can't wait to, to listen to that one. And it's been fun getting to listen to you and Paul talk. And I'm excited for kickball because I know it's a big passion of yours. So that'll be great. Uh, yeah. And definitely more what we talk about is coming soon as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's get right into it. Bruges, ratings and slogans. Brendan, why don't you start us off? Bruges is an interesting one. It's a dice game where in some ways I'm not even excited when the dice get rolled. It's a card game where I don't always care what cards I have. Um, and in some ways, Bruges feels like a nice float down a river uh, where, you know, you just sort of see where you end up. And other times it can feel like a, a raucous rapid rides where everything's going off the rails. And it's a game of mini identities. 7.8 out of 10. Awesome. For me, uh, Bruges is... It's like the unruly step cousin to Steffenfeld's most beloved game, Castles of Burgundy. 
there's a lot of similar ideas. I think if you like one, you'll like the other. But where Castles of Burgundy is everything is perfectly nice and neat and calculated. Uh, Bruges is the opposite. Everything feels much more chaotic uh, at times, much more random. But the payoff for that is that each game of Bruges is much more uh, different from the one before it. Uh, than in a game like Castles of Burgundy, where you're pretty much going to get the same great experience over and over. Uh, Bruges is going to have much higher highs and also much lower lows. And for me, that makes this game really uh, incredible. Uh, Something I would consider a desert island game, you know, Mm. one that I will never get bored of playing just because of how many different experiences it offers. And for me, it's a 10. Wow. <laughs> Second 10? El Grande was the first for you? I, did I give El Grande a 10? I think so. Or you were at like 9.8. So this yeah. might be your first It 10. might be my first. And, and I just, uh, well, I'm surely gave, did we, we talk about Castle of Burgundy, right? Yeah, you gave Castle yeah, of Burgundy a 10. A 10. So th- these yeah. are my two 10s. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, Steffenfeld. <laughs> yeah, uh, my guy. <laughs> He's the first published designer where we have a uh, triple coverage so far. Exclusive. Oh, wow. Play. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess my bias is, is coming through. Um, but to give you a little bit of a better idea, let's go over to me this week doing a little pre-recorded rules overview of Bruges. Interdecisional spaceship computer. Hit it. Boop, 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 boop. Steffenfeld's Bruges is a point salad style Euro game where players will accrue points through a variety of sources, including building houses, building canals, advancing on the reputation track, recruiting people into houses, and winning majorities. Play takes place across a number of rounds. Each round has four phases, and within that rigid structure, each player will get four actions per round. Players have some ability to influence the total number of rounds, but a typical game lasts about eight. In the first phase, each player draws cards from one of two stacks of face-down cards, up to a hand size of five. When selecting from the two stacks, players can see the color of the card they are taking. If a player draws the last card in a stack, that triggers the end of the game, at the conclusion of the current round. In the second phase, five colored dice are rolled, matching the color of cards in the game. These dice dictate the cost to advance up the reputation track, the amount of gold each color suit of cards can be exchanged for, and each player will receive one threat of the matching color for all dice showing a value of five or six. If a third threat of the same color is taken by any player, they have a penalty which takes place immediately. Then, players choose to advance one space up the reputation track by paying gold equal to the sum of all of the ones and twos rolled, or they can pass. In the third phase of the game, players finally get to play cards and perform actions. Each player will take turns performing one action, starting with the first player, and until each player has taken four turns. Turns are quick, each consisting of just one action. On a player's turn, they will play one card from their hand and choose one of six possible actions to take with that multi-use card. Cards come in five color suits, which affect the action taken. A yellow card, for example, can be used to pick up yellow workers, discard yellow threats, build yellow colored canal segments, be played as a house only if a yellow worker is paid for the cost, and claim gold equal to value shown on the yellow die. Finally, each card could be played 
face up as a recruited person for the gold cost depicted. In the fourth and final phase, majorities are checked and scored. If a player has the single most persons recruited, canals built, or highest reputation, they win the majority for that area, each worth four victory points in the end game scoring. If at this point the end game has been triggered, count up your points and declare the winner. Otherwise, return to phase one and repeat. If that sounds like standard Euro point salad fare, just remember that nobody does that better than Mr. Stefan Feld. And we are back. Uh, so hopefully, I know it is not as good as Brendan's masterful job <laughs> that he does week in, week out. Uh, and I can assure you now that it is not easy to put those together. Um, but hopefully that gives you some idea uh, of, of how this game is played that will help you to process and enjoy this discussion to come. Uh, but let me just give you a little bit of a summary first. Uh, so in Bruges, a.k.a. Uh, Bruges, or spelled differently depending on the country which you're in, or according to, to me, half the time, Bruges. <laughs> I don't know why I always say that. Uh, it's kind of become an inside joke with, with some of my friends. Uh, you get to assume the role of a merchant who must maintain the relationships with those in power in the city while competing against one another for influence, power, and status. Dramatic events cast their shadows over the city with players needing to worry about threats to their prosperity from more than just their opponent. Uh, and this, interestingly enough, uh, was actually a Kennerspiel nominee, um, which I think is pretty interesting. I think it's this type of game probably would not be, uh, you know, in, in, in that same kind of running today. It sort of speaks to a earlier era of that award. Um, but I mean, in my opinion, completely deserved. Uh, and the other thing I want to talk about in this summary too, uh, is that Bruges has, in my opinion, one of just the most necessary expansions ever, which is a city on the Zwin expansion, which came out in 2014. It, it provides three additional modules to the game. Uh, one of which is, you know, it, al it almost doesn't feel like the game is complete without it. And, and we can maybe talk more about this later, but most of my plays of this game uh, include all expansions. Uh, so that's certainly being baked into my rating and impressions of the game too. Which module is the, the absolutely essential one? It's the boats module. So Interesting. Um, yeah, the and that basically gives you the ability to take an extra action at times when you take the canal building action, which is one of the core elements of the game. And I just think like in my plays of the game without that, taking the canal action is, is kind of lackluster, right? It's yeah. usually better just to build people and put the people in the house, build the houses and then pay the people to live in your houses as of course it is in real life. <laughs> I was just going to talk about how Castles of Burgundy, this is a more thematic version of Castles of Burgundy without the physical arrangements. And then Jake, you just literally said build people. So like, it's like a testament. So like, okay, maybe, maybe a drip more thematic, but not quite ripe with theme. Yeah, I think that's like kind of one of like the funniest theme breakdowns in this game, but just in games in general, it's like, 
Yeah. Okay. So you, the worker, you use the worker to build the house. I'm with you there. And then you <laughs> give your gold to the person so that they'll live in your house. It's like, wait, now I'm not following. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Uh... Well, let's jump, if it's okay with you, into our discussion points. And I want to start with the multi-use cards in this game because that's something near and dear to my my heart. Uh, and I'm curious, like, how did you find the decisions uh, with, you know, what actions to take with your cards? Yeah, so I think that this is one of the coolest aspects of Bruges, and it's really what replaces the spatial puzzle of Castles of Burgundy. If these are sort of twinned games, this is the element that's brought in. And I think not only are they multi-use, but what I what really struck me off the bat was their partial information multi-use cards. So the backs of them are not uh, fully hidden information because it gives you a, a color uh, and that color plays into all of the different actions that you might do in the game. So when these cards, you're drawing them from two different piles on the table. So you're always making a choice between two different color of cards unless the same colors on both decks and then you have no choice at all uh, between those card colors. So I thought that that was brilliant and great. I actually had a prototype with this sort of like card back partial information and I feel super scallywagged by Stefan Feld, but I think he implemented it brilliantly and it it I think it puts into the game just with the outset of the cards in the drawing just that perfect little like simple decision that doesn't that is consequential but not difficult. You're never, when you're in the card drawing phase, sort of agonizing over which cards to draw, but it's sort of like your your bread and butter decision of like, it feels good and I get to do this six times as I build my hand back up. Yeah, and another interesting thing, just since we're, we're going on to the kind of the card drawing, so you'll you'll draw back up uh, to, to a hand of five cards each turn. And the way the end of the game is determined in Bruges is if any, the, the cards are split in half. So you have two decks of cards and there'll be varying amounts of cards depending on the number of players but if any one of those decks uh runs out of cards that's what triggers the end game and you will then play the last round um which i think also has that same kind of decision making where it allows you to make a decision in in that like if if you're ahead in the game then you are incentivized to pick the card from the deck that has less uh, where if you're behind, maybe you want to take from the deck that has more. Uh, so I don't know. I think that's kind of another like in, another fun decision, though not particularly a hard one. I and I think that that mechanic we've we've talked about that mechanic of player agency over the end of a game and how it can affect the decision space a lot. Um, and I think in some games we've come down on sort of really not liking it. Like in Terraforming Mars, it felt like it wasn't really meshing with what was going on, even though that's sort of the core of that game. And I think that's a large part of our issues with it. But here it feels so organic um, and it just, it, it incentivizes maybe you to make a decision that you don't want it, the game to slow down, but you really need that red house because you have a, a card where one of its uh, person abilities is like, if you have three houses, you get this red houses built, you get this huge payoff. Um, so I think that the brilliance of this game is the multi-use cards is the different colors of the cards and how those interact with the dice. And it's tough to like 
it, I feel like we're coming at like the biggest sandwich in Bruges all at once and trying to get yeah. it in our mouth because this is the whole game and and this is the system that we sort of have to untangle. But I think the the multi-use cards are are brilliant. I do wonder, it's interesting that, to me that you sort of, you pick all your cards and then you roll the dice, which is a real like spell of output randomness because you don't get to know like what your cards are going to be good at in the next round in terms of like, if a die value is high, I might really want to use that to get gold. Whereas if a die value is low, it might be a good turn to just get a worker from it because that doesn't care about the die value of the matching color. Um, and I found that system brilliant and interesting and fun and figuring out the puzzle of, of hand management in a lot of ways. Okay. These are my five cards in these five colors. What am I, or maybe I've gone into three browns and two reds. Did that work out for me? Was that a smart risk or did I get burned by it? And I think that puzzle is why, if I had to guess, that's the Desert Island fun for you. Yeah, right. And I, I think that's such an interesting point that you bring up about how big of a difference it makes just that simple design choice of having the dice roll after cards are drawn because uh, that really puts the the like risk mit- mitigation aspect of the game at the forefront of your mind when you're like taking cards um because as as you mentioned the cards can also be used to get to get rid of threats too and if you already knew ahead of time you know what threats were coming your way that could totally change uh your decision making i mean probably in a way that some people would really enjoy, right? Making it a lot more tactical, right? More, uh, I guess, less output randomness is always going to make the game more tactical. Um, but yeah, I think I think it would definitely change that sort of wildness of the game. I also want to say just before we leave the subject completely, I just think it's really interesting that kind of the first thing you brought up in the game was the the card backs and drawing them off the top of the deck. And then I kind of uh, went forward with how the, that factors into uh, kind of a player-driven end game. Yeah. I just wanted to, just because it's so fascinating. So this game is being reprinted or re-implemented implemented as Hamburg coming out later this year. And both those elements are getting streamlined out of the game. So that's like where the, uh, I guess, rubber meets the road of like a modern game design for 2021 versus a game that came out in 2013. So in in Hamburg, it's just, I think, an eight round game every time. And you can choose from, and there's all the colored cards are in their own stack and you get to pick from any stack you want what that's that... <laughs> I, like i have to wrap my head around that a little bit it, 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 there's this discussion going on on twitter right now um with senfu lim and eric lang talking a lot about like overdeveloped games and is there the potential to overdevelop a fun idea and have that fun idea lose its identity and obviously we haven't played hamburger Hamburg. I can't Hamburger. Remember it. Hamburger. <laughs> Hamburger <laughs> Bruges, the two sandwich. best mouth games. <laughs> I did just call it a sandwich we could barely get in our mouth. So maybe I'm onto something. But I'm really intrigued and I'm curious how that will feel because I literally leading up to it said that the, those decisions felt like bread and butter, like simple slam dunk decisions that were fun and streamlined and, and sort of easy. So I could see them feeling extraneous if you wanted it to go a little quicker um, in terms I, yeah. of like planning your turns, but it's not that long of a game. 
Right. I'm not mad at it. Like, I think that makes a ton of sense, right? As we were talking about, those decisions feel kind of obvious. Mm-hmm. And right, anytime there's a decision that's like pretty obvious, uh, then like maybe you don't need it to be a decision at all. And you can just have a less complex game where it's easier to get to the actual uh, fun and interesting decisions. Um, and I think the uh, the thing with like the variable ending time is a lot of times it doesn't pan out that way because it's pretty obvious who's in the lead anyway. So even yeah. if that person's drawing from the lower deck, then the other person or other players just even it out. I, so it's like, it feels like a choice that doesn't actually ever really impact the game. Definitely. I feel like that mechanic works best when there's something you're digging for and you have to weigh like, I want this specific thing and I don't know if I can get it, but I'm going to take the risk of accelerating the game to try to get the specific thing that I need. And that's just not really going on in Rouge. But it it does limit the ability of like just the fun of drawing a card, which I think is something that I love in games ever since I I was as a kid, you know, playing Magic and Yu-Gi-Oh! Just like, drawing the perfect card and there's something really fun and exciting it's like i need a blue i need a blue i yes. need a blue and 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 you don't get it and you're just like crushed or you know you flip off the top red card and there it is the blue that you need and you're just like thank you now i can complete my plan uh so yeah i don't know i don't know how i'll feel uh definitely i'll have to to revisit that once hamburg comes out i'm super excited for it definitely um, if I can add one closing thought, I wonder, this conversation has made me realize, I wonder if in some ways an overdeveloped game is a game that only, I, there's probably many ways to overdevelop a game, but if some ways overdeveloped games might be games where the some of the easier decisions and the more fun, low-hanging fruit decisions are paired off because you want it to be as much bang for your buck as possible. So like the most meaty, crunchy decisions in every single turn. But by pulling away those sort of easy ones, you lose the balance of the decision space. And it looks like lopsided in some ways by like yeah. how dense those decisions are. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think that this, the re-implementation of this game is going to be bringing it closer to a game like Castles of Burgundy, right? Where you yep. have a narrower set of outcomes. You're never going to play the game where <laughs> you just didn't draw the blue card you needed six turns in a row which uh can absolutely happen in rouge uh, <laughs> which is you know a, a probably a net positive thing for the vast majority of players but if like me and you've been playing the same game of bruges with the same three players or four players uh since March of 2020 <laughs> when quarantine forced us inside and you're now on game, you know, 27 with the same people, you, you want as many possible outcomes as possible. Uh, and, and this game has, you know, been so suited towards that, that it really hasn't stagnated even a little bit uh, in, in all those repeated plays. It invites calamity in a way that, and it doesn't, it doesn't shy away from the potential for the players at the table to all feel sick to their stomach. And, and that's, that's cool. I, that is something I really admire about the game of Bruges. Like everything can go wrong on a turn and then everything can keep going wrong on the next round. Like, and the game's just like tough luck. It sucks equally for all of you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so kind of getting us back on track here. Yeah. 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 Um, I think the re, you know, and staying, staying with the multi-use cards, I think why this game reminds me so much of Castles of Burgundy beyond just 
a point salad nature where no matter what you're doing, you're getting points, uh, is that it has, I think it's that, uh, you know, thinking about our, uh, framework for the shot, for the shape of a decision space, Mm. it has the same kind of like punctuated dynamic decision space as castles of Burgundy, uh, where you have a bunch of choices at the beginning of your turn and they get pared down throughout the round and you get a bunch of choices again. Um, and so I just think it's, there's something about that kind of decision space that like really appeals to me where it's so fun thinking through, you know, I have my hand of five cards and each of those five cards can do one of five things. Like that framework is really fun for me to like map my way through my turn. You know, you can look at those five turns and just do the strategizing, right? Of like, I'm going to do this, then this, then this, and this, and that's going to get me towards this goal. Um, and, and then, you know, you're going to have a whole new opportunity to do that again. So I, I mean, I still think I just really love about it. Uh, though just like in Castle of Burgundy, things your opponent do could throw that awry. You might have to recalibrate throughout the turn. Yeah, definitely. It, the, we talked about this in Castles of Burgundy too, the sort of juxtaposing inputs of systems leading to this really vibrant decision space where the potential decisions, the choices available to you are massive. And the more you play, the more clear the paths before you once the dice at the table and you see your cards become. And that's partially what I think makes the decision space so rewarding as well is I, in the span of playing this over the course of the last four weeks, really felt how quickly I started to see the actual viable decisions versus initially just feeling like Stefan felt it hooked, you know, like a, a fire hose of choices up to my mouth and turned it on. <laughs> and I'm sure Jake, you're like so much further down that stream where like now you sort of, okay, I have this card. I'm hoping for this outcome with the dice. And then you sort of groove into your decision space more quickly. And then there's really meaningful potential decisions that can really impact the game because the cards are so consequential. And there's also the, we'd be remiss, I think, in this section not to talk about the workers, the the sort of tempo consideration of the game always asks you, if you're if you want to use red or there's because there's five different colors you always have to be getting colors of those workers if you're going to be building houses with them uh, or mostly just building houses right jake yeah yeah so the uh unless you're using the boat expansion okay okay and then you also use a worker to activate the boats boats as well another great output for like why that could be really essential i feel like is workers ending up being an extra bonus but i think that sort of decision of like okay when when can i fit getting workers into my strategy and because they come in denominations of two when you're using an action some cards will get you just one worker oh, with specific you color. also can use workers to activate car like cards. people that you played to so there are the- multiple ways you can use them and the action of taking them, though, is what right, activates right, right. a lot of them. Yeah. So figuring out when they come in those denominations of two, when to fit that into your turn is really interesting because the act of taking workers isn't progressing you towards winning in as direct a way as a lot of the other actions. It's sort of you're doing your homework or your chores. And I think that's a really interesting sort of framework of like a lot of these actions are getting you points, but this is your homework and you have to do your homework. 
For sure. And I, yeah, and we should say, uh, you know, with each of the cards, you have the possibility of using it to get rid of threat token, using it to get gold, playing it as a person, playing it as a house, playing it to get workers, uh, or playing it to build canals, right? So there really are a ton of decisions baked into each of those cards. And as you're pointing out, right, using one card to get workers because it's, it's you know a red card is going to give you red workers and you might need blue workers to activate something else so it's not as easy as like okay i need to build a house and get some workers and then do this and this you have to like get the right colors of each variety of things so you know as you're thinking through the possibilities of the turn it has that kind of like bandwidth thing where you have to actually like pl- plan out each of the options all the way through or you'll get to a point where you're like oh right i i need to play this card as a person but i also need it to be played as a worker to do my optimal strategy uh, so it's always like the inputs you take throughout your play this game is going to change you know the optimal path through the totally. game totally and i again there's so much going on that i feel like my point might lead us away but I want to, after I say this, maybe we can talk about the person mechanics and then return to the idea, but I don't want to forget it. And that idea is that I love the way that the different color of cards incentivizes you to diversify because of the dice. Without the dice, you might sort of be pushed towards like, I'm going to specialize in blue and red. And the game still tries to sort of do that a little bit because if I'm building houses, right, I it behooves me to like have more red cards if I'm going to take workers in red so that I can use my red workers to build red houses. So I want lots of red cards to then be able to like play people into my red houses. Easy, streamlined. If I don't have a worker of a specific color, I can't use a card to play it face down to make a house to put someone into. But by going into one color specifically, you leave yourself open to a lot of potential dice risk when those dice get rolled. If they don't come out favorably, you your economy might be screwed. You might not have access to gold and then it feels really bad. So figuring out that optimization of like how much risk can I take in terms of these different levers is like brilliant. So good. And it, it, it's hidden well. Yeah, it really is. I think that kind of transitions us nicely into talking about the way risk and luck comes into this game. Uh, So yeah, you're exactly right. One of the kind of premier ways is when you roll the dice, there's one for each color of cards, and that tells you basically what each card is worth, the value of each card, the exchange rate for gold. So like you're saying, if you get three red cards and a one red is rolled, uh, then you could really be in a bad spot for uh, for, for getting gold. So, so that's a, a big way risk comes in. Uh, and, and you're exactly right, that tension there between having lots of cards to build uh, and having, you know, ideally, you know, you could have one of each colored card in your hand. And then no matter what, uh, you can exchange the, the best value one for gold. But if you do that, you're <laughs> going to be limited in the way that you can build houses and get workers in that specific turn. So you're like turnover turn. If you're a good planner, maybe you can make that work really well. But in a single round, that could be really, really difficult if you don't have a plan or you aren't going in with a lot of gold. And I think gold, it's important to state, is gold converts to victory points. You need gold to win the game. You need the other things to enable your gold to turn into victory points by playing cards or building 
building canals or advancing up the reputation track and getting people into your houses. All of those things that convert richly to victory points happen from gold, but you need to spend your cards and not just taking gold because you have to set those things up. And that tension is just, ooh, it's so good. And Jake, also the fact that the dice, it's just a straight one to six. There's no like, we're not gonna create a nice bell curve of outcomes by using two dice of each color or anything funky like that. We're just saying, nope, it's gonna be really random. We might have, between, it could be a value of one or it could be six times that value. Right. And I think that's partially what makes the decision space so like exciting in some ways. And I say I don't care about the dice because you have to play in a way where you can't overcommit and be screwed. You have to mitigate the risk, but turn over turn, it is very exciting. And then, it's also there's so much to unpack but the way that the threat factors the threat tokens factor into this too also amplifies there's like risk on oh my economy might break down but then there's risk on like oh things are going too well and i'm getting punished because there's too many high value things being rolled which is a really interesting mechanism yeah so the the way the risks work in this game or sorry the the threat markers is whenever a six, a five or a six is rolled in a color, you get one tile basically of that color. Um, and three tiles will com complete a complete, will create a complete circle. So as soon as you get your third tile on any given color, uh, you have to exchange them all back in and you get some sort of penalty. So, and they're all different and kind of wildly different in the impact that they might have on you. So like the blue one, for instance, can be super devastating because the blue one means you lose all workers you have, right? And if you have five or six workers when that hits, you know, that's wiping out three actions, almost an entire round of the game in, in this uh, game that usually plays about seven or eight rounds, uh, right? So that's hugely, hugely devastating. If you have a lot of workers, you know, if you have zero workers when that hits, uh, then, you know, it's actually a benefit to you because now that's not the, you know, having the two threats in that color isn't hanging over your head anymore. Um, and, you know, you, you, you got no penalty from it. Uh, you could also lose all your gold. You could also just have to discard a house or built canal section, discard a person out of a house, or perhaps the worst of all of them is the purple one which means you just lose three points. So there's no playing around that. Uh, that's just uh, a big fat punch to the gut. <laughs> these are like not even just threats. These are like calamity potentially. Like <laughs> these can go so wrong that like the plague hits and all of your workers are destroyed. Or like literally like robbers come from, from across town into your little area of Bruges and steal all your gold. Like the potential for these to go so wrong is amazing. And I love it because it's such a potential like gut punch but then the flip side like you're saying jake i it's so interesting how the potential for a hugely consequential outcome paired with a narrow but controllable potentially positive outcome where if you can time it just right and you don't have agency over the dice roll but you have a little bit in potentially setting it up with how much gold you have or something that really raises the skill ceiling and the if there's a bingo moment in this game, I think that's as close as you sort of get of like, I spend all my gold. Well, I shouldn't say that. There's also the combo system. Yeah, you could have some crazy bingos just with the card combos together. But yeah, yeah there, there definitely can be bingos here too. 
or even like not like sometimes you're in a situation in this game where you're like okay like do I just go up to 12 gold here because I have the opportunity to get a card for six, knowing that if I yellow five or six rolls next turn, like I'm done. And then that yellow doesn't roll a five or six and you've like escaped and can do all this stuff because you took that risk like that in and of itself. uh, Mm. You know, that calculated risk can feel like a bingo uh, to me. Um, But yeah, I think these, this is also part of the game where I think like my understanding of the game has grown the most Mm. um, because you have an action available to you where you can discard one of those threat markers, right? A red discard, a red card to, to remove one uh, threat marker. Also a lot of the person cards, when you play them in your house can interact with this in some way by uh, not by, you know, either removing some of your threats or even distributing some of your threats to other players um and and so you know when i first approached this game i think i thought about like risk mitigation as like okay i have to be constantly working ahead uh to make sure none of these threats hit and punish me uh and then as i play more you know you i've realized the game is actually a lot more about like navigating your game situation to a point where you can never be punished that bad because usually discarding a card for reducing a threat marker to get down to like one over two for a threat that like may never come, right? Y- you know, it, it may be just, I mean, that gives, it always gives you one point, but that's generally a pretty weak action. I think it's the worst victory point conversion you could take in the game. Right. Almost. A whole turn for one victory point. It's basically like the lowest value conversion there is. So finding ways around it. I agree, Jake, like very, that was early on. I was like, oh, I can't get by hit by any of these threats. These are really nasty buggers. There's no way I'm going to let any of this happen. And then slowly I was like, oh, I'm just losing because I'm spending all my energy preventing threats rather than figuring out how to play around them. And I think if I might, the cards that interact with threats, a lot of those are really fun and actually like form these little strategies of like finding ways to slot in your threat mitigation uh, in a way that feels rewarding where you're like two for wanting them. And, and that feels really cool. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing about threats too, uh, that, you know, I missed early on is some of these can be just a straight up benefit to you, even if you do have to take the punishment for it. So for example, uh, there are some zero cost people mm-hmm. that yeah. just give you, a. a like a one-time bonus. Like maybe they give you three gold and a worker when you play them into a house but the way the points work on people is uh, a three cost worker so workers are either zero three six nine or twelve cost people not yeah people not workers oh sorry the people that go in the houses are zero through twelve cost increments of three uh the three cost people are worth one point six two nine three and twelve four and zero are worth zero um, so it's great to play a zero cost worker into your house early uh, in the game to get that benefit to your economy and maybe get up and running a little bit faster. And then later in the game, if the you, you may actively want the threat to come through that allows you to discard a person from a house uh, because you know, that person is then just occupying a spot and giving you no points. You know, it's then opens up a house so you can play a more valuable worker into or a more valuable person into it later in the game 
uh, and, and that's actually just like a strict benefit to you if, if you right because it'll save you the the action of paying a worker to build a house which is also not a very efficient way to get points because you only get one point for each house built now we're talking theme nefarious medieval <laughs> landlord kicking people out of your houses because they have no value to you to get someone more prestigious in there jake you're you're dastardly yeah and that's an even cooler that's exactly the sort of like emergent uh, emergent gameplay that's so rich and rewarding that comes out of some of Steffensfeld's systems that make his games these like systems design mwah, just chef's kiss. Yeah. The other one that can be a benefit to you uh, when you're playing with the boats module exclusively is Discarded the one canal. that allows you to discard a canal because the first canal you build in the game only costs you one gold and typically the boat actions when you take them uh, are, are really valuable to you. It could be either like get six gold or it can be activate a, a, a one-time my favorite is the one that allows you like reactivate a one-time activate worker or person <laughs> that you've already put in there uh, so a, a good strategy can be like keeping just that one canal section at one uh, so that you're able to discard it replay it to reactivate uh, a boat um, it, it can be that can be like a really nice kind of a bingo moment there as well uh, with with that module action activated. I think that Stefan Feld, one of the things that his designs do so well is just some games really shy away from like the, the downside mechanic because it's potentially feel bad. But when you have these upside mechanics to the downside, they just add so much to the game. And maybe that really is like part of what he's so strong at is like having potential downsides that can be upsides feel really effective. I'd have to go back and like really look at some of his other games that we've covered, like Carpe Diem and Castles of Burgundy. And he has a ton more. But I'd be curious to see if that's a theme throughout his work. Yeah. I mean, I think the interesting thing about like downsides, right, is not getting hit by them feels great good yeah yeah you feel like an, yeah you're if you're dodging dodging an attacker you feel really clever for that right yeah um yeah uh so another way that kind of risk mitigation comes into this game and this is totally different uh, a big divergence from castles of burgundy or even carpe diem um but still a potential big negative. Is there just like some serious take that cards in this game uh, that you kind of, I think that, you know, at uh, a very experienced level, you're kind of aware of and are able to play around. But when you're just starting out the game, uh, you know, the, these effects can really blindside you. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, I think one of the cards, so there's essentially all the people in this game come in like nine different class of worker, basically (laughs) like they're like different professions. And one of the professions is just like the assassin guild. So all the assassin cards are take that in some way. And they, they're just be, they can be stealing gold, stealing workers, giving your threats away to other people. Uh, And they can be like hugely impactful and swingy moments in the game. Do you like this element of the game, Jake? Do you feel like it's a better game for having the take that interaction? Or where do you come down on sort of this aspect? Well, it definitely is upping the player interaction. You know, so if you're somebody who, who, you know, who says or thinks that like a game like Castles of Burgundy uh, is 
you know, a, you know, a well thought out game, but it's like two multiplayer solitaire. I think that this game feels a lot less like that because of these cards. Um, I, I do think they're probably. Uh, I wonder if they're. It'll be interesting to see how it's approached in Hamburg. I mean, I, I do like it, and I feel like it ups the skill ceiling. Like knowing about these cards, being able to play around them, being able uh, to to play them at the right time. Uh, so you know, like one of them, one of the cards is steal three gold from every player. So if you're playing that in a five player game, wow, that's really strong. Uh, but you know, playing with the same group of people that are all really good at this game. Like, you know, people are aware of it and they see that, you know, oh, so-and-so has nine gold. They could have this. So I'm going to like strategically play my turn to stay below three gold almost at like all times uh, or, you know, make sure that not everyone has it all at once. So then like, when do you play that card? Do you play it at a time when you're only going to be getting eight gold, you know, and giving up the possibility or do you save it for another point uh and you know how long is too long uh to where you're not getting the full value or being able to like add that into your engine and so on and so forth so i do think like a ton of really interesting decisions come out of it uh at you know when i'm playing with like coming into the game with my experience level after playing it like 20 some times but you know, playing it the first time, not knowing about that card, and then all of a sudden your plan's ruined because some take that card just took away three of your gold. Uh, yeah, that can feel bad. And I think, you know, I, I wouldn't begrudge anyone for not liking that part of the game. It's really interesting because I this is making me think of the player interaction in El Grande, which is targeted and can be very... it can be very powerful in terms of the effects that are there. But because it's so much linked to the game, like to me, some of the interaction feels separate than the game that I conceive of as the game of Bruges, right? Like the individual, I'm building up my houses to put play to put different people in them. And I'm trying to manage these other goals, like building out my canals. Um, this just feels like a spanner in the wheel. Whereas in El Grande, it feels like directly part of the action. Those those take that mechanics there, like feel like a better fit to me. And I think here, one thing that's frustrating for me is I think a lot of games attempt this feat, which is... Hold on. Such, are we are we doing turbulence right now? I think we might be uh, doing a little turbulence. Uh, all right. Well, in that case... Uh-oh. In that case... Oh, <laughs> uh, this is your captain speaking. We are now approaching a little bit of turbulence. Please return to your seats and buckle your safety belts. Buckle them. <laughs> Thanks, Captain. Um, I think that one thing, the tough nut for me, I don't hate the system. I think that the player interaction is good. What you're describing, Jake, I feel like I would get at much more out of table playing this with a group that played many times, like you're mentioning. I think that can be really interesting. I don't love the fact that as the player count increases, the number of cards that will be played that are take that increases because there's more cards in play, the number of players that are there. And the more players that are playing, the better the cards get. I think that that is particularly, that can be really dangerous for a design in terms of the game feeling really different at one or two or three players than it does at higher player counts. And it shifts what's valuable in the game so much, um, which is interesting. It, 
for me, it doesn't like ruin the game, but I am curious what they'll do with it in Hamburg. And it it's fun that it adds another strategy of like, we're playing with a lot of players. So this is a way to add a high player strategy. Whereas when we're just playing with a lower player count, these cards are less appealing because the value of them goes down directly linearly with the number of players. So I'm like kind of take her to leave it. It's like fine. It's not perfect. It kind of does its job, but it's the sideshow. Totally. Yeah. And I think what you're saying too speaks to a bigger point about this game. And this is something I would, I really hesitate to say about any game, but I feel like because of my experience with this game and because I gave it a 10 out of 10, I'm going to just say what I think is true that these cards are not balanced. They are just wildly imbalanced in terms of power level. Like you're saying, uh, you know, part of that is contingent upon it being, you know, playable at all at two to five players and so some of the card effects just scale like crazy uh and if you happen to get a few of the scaling effects in a game and somebody else doesn't get any scaling effects like that person's probably not gonna win you know uh, and that's something that can certainly rub players wrong uh it's also something that kind of enables you know a balanced game is never gonna have the wildly different like kind of play experiences that are so common uh in bruise and that makes it to me infinitely replayable um but yeah i mean i certainly think that's the downside and that's not even mentioning the astronomer card which is like so absurdly overpowered compared to all the other cards in the game that like if you get it uh you pretty much just win as long as you're able to play it in like the first half of the game and don't just get royally unlucky in in the people cards you draw after that and the astronomer card is a card that says uh it's it costs a lot to play i think it's nine i think it's nine, 12 12 gold to play it's the most expensive card in card tier in the game when you play uh, the astronomer into a house for the rest of the game whenever you play a card a person into a house that you have that has an immediate action you just do that twice so that's like the doubling is not present in a lot of other aspects of the game and you can set up these wild combos where you're enabling really powerful cards where I showed Jake a combo string that I had using the astronomer. And I was like, is this the best combo? This is the best combo that I've done. Is this close? And Jake was like, Oh, you were using the astronomer. Of course, this is like the coolest combo that you've done because this card's silly, which made a lot of sense, but it gave me the chance to like discard two threat tokens and gain six victory points twice or something. And it felt really good. Yeah. Maybe. It, yeah. There, there are some really silly combos too, uh, typically involving, um, there are cards that like dig out of the graveyard. So a card that allow you, like when you play a card into your house, you can grab a different card that's previously been discarded and put that into a house if you have one available. So a really fun combo you can do with the astronomer is having three open houses. And if you're lucky enough to get a digger card in which there's one in every single kind of class or profession in the game or whatever uh, you get to, play one card to fill three houses with people. They could, each of those cards uh, that you're getting out of the yard could be nine cost cards if, if they if there were available. Uh, so that's uh, three, six, eight points right there. Plus if any of those cards you bring back have an ability that, well, you get to double activate that too. Uh, so it just gets like, it's, it's, you know, it's honestly completely broken. Um, which again is something I, I hesitate to say, but my group, we have house ruled it that we 
in our games that we play, if you draw the astronomer, uh, you you aren't allowed to play it as a person. Mm, and that works fine because you can still play it in the house. You can still play it for workers. It's not like that horrible to draw it. Uh, but I, we just realized after playing, it's like if you get the astronomer in the first half of the game, you know, we everyone else might as well scoop. <laughs> I think that one thing that's really interesting about that is that I, right before we went into this point of the astronomer and you talked about this sort of going to your to your discard pile to filter out and tutor for pick specific cards, is I, I was going to say that I think part of the reason why this game works so well, even though the cards are so variable in their power, is because you don't have agency over what you're taking. You're not face up drafting specific cards, so there's not the potential the 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 potential variance over the strength of cards that everyone gets in a game is going to be roughly equal and it's up to the player to maximize how they play their cards weak or strong and that becomes the fun of the game but the second you put in that you're picking specific cards from anywhere even if it's a discard i think that's potentially where things can start to go off the rails with this I system should, I, I should say like with those the digging cards you have to like get it out of a specific class so it's not just sure. like any card that's been discarded it'll be like you know get a protector card from the discard pile or get a merchant card from the, you know. Um, so it's not, it's not as bad as just any two cards, um, but it's still pretty bad. But I also think that highlights something that's really cool about the game, which is like, because there are all these different cards, all of them have unique and different powers. It, it feels like comboing done right. Yeah. Like this game isn't telling you like, get the astronomer plus the, look out you know and play and then if you have them both then you get some benefit it's allowing you to find these things uh, on your own and perhaps maybe i've spoiled the fun a little bit by kind of like revealing these synergies on this podcast but you know the first six games we played was fine with the astronomer <laughs> and then once uh, people started like figuring out combos that you know, were emergent in the game system, it became, okay, well, maybe that's like a little bit over-centralizing of a strategy. Uh, but, you know, that's still like a fun emergent thing of the game, uh, you know, and I think that also kind of th that these crazy things can happen speaks in some way to like the strength of the system too, even if I maybe wish this one particular card ha had been toned down a bit. And I love that the system invites you to make do with what you end up with. And you have agency over what you choose to play out of what you have, but you don't have agency over what you have. And that gives you that really interesting variability in how the games play out. So that's like great system, feels fair, interesting, fun. Yes. Absolutely. Um, the other thing that kind of makes the decision so fun in this game, and I don't think we need to like belabor this, but... Uh, Similar to Castle of Burgundy, the Bruges has these majority systems mm. uh, where you're trying to be at the end of any given round, the person that has the most of uh, any one of like people played in houses, canals, built uh, reputation. At the beginning of each round, you can pay money to move up the reputation track. Uh, having pets, if you're playing with the pet module. Um, and, and that's kind of, it's just another interesting layer of, on top of, you know, all the other decision-making elements we talked to adjust, playing your cards efficiently that may pull you in one direction or another, uh, and also increases the level of player interaction as you, as you, it's, 
you know, without being a game that forces you to like audit what your opponents are doing, uh, it, it still allows you to like at, at a quick glance, see where everyone's at in these like four important metrics that makes it a lot less of a heads down experience. I think that there was the potential for this to go really wrong. And I would say it's like player interaction light. Like you care, but you're not directly interacting, which is interesting. It's like a reference, but not an interaction, but it still counts as interaction in my book. And I think- Yeah, it's like a race, right? Yeah, exactly. And the canals, the fact that they give you points for building them innately and that the majority is just a bonus, just like all the other things is great. Like even if you're not the first one, you're still getting a payoff that's meaningful to you because you're still getting progress towards the end. And to me, these just feel like a nice way to texture, uh, add a little bit more complexity to the game that kind of fades to the background after you've played enough. And it gives you like, just remember you have to multitask. You can't just play this part of the game or this part of the game. Like take all these things to a, in a, into account. We'll raise the skill, skill ceiling a little bit, but they're not, they're not like the... They're not the main show. They're yeah, here to I, add background. Though I will say this game does offer all kinds of avenues and yes. paths to victory. Like, uh, you know, I would say, like, if you want to be the big canal guy, I've got a friend, Jack. He's the canal guy. He goes big canals every, every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and he wins, you know, you know, his fair share of games for sure. I'm kind of the put people in the house guy because I like that like comboing element, and I and I you know go for that, and I think that is a a, a great way to win. But you can also do, uh, you know, a, a make sure you're on top of the majority, focusing on that. You can do a generalist strategy, uh, and really all of these things I've seen to be uh, viable in my games. You can't neglect every. You probably can't neglect people completely you're gonna need to like put some people into your house that's that's somewhat uh synergized with the other stuff you're trying to do uh but in general i think all paths are viable including the generalist thing which is cool yeah i love the canals too because they give you a sense of progress just as you're looking at the table it's fun how they build literally onto the board and i i think that really one of the it the canals are great and I enjoyed them as a starting player because I always had a sense of like, oh, this is a valuable action. I know exactly how much victory point victory points I'm going to be paid out with. It feels good. It's it, it, it was a nice way to onboard into not necessarily engaging with the house and the people system as heavily in my first games while still feeling engaged and like I was competing. Um, so for me, this system's really clever. It's cool. It works well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the last thing I'll say about the majorities uh, before we move into our kind of closing discussion, which is interesting, I haven't seen a lot of other games, is it's not as simple as once somebody's claimed a majority, that's it. Uh, you know, you see that in a lot of games, like like Castle of Burgundy, right? The first person to fill up all their animal tiles gets that bonus. But in this, if you're at the end of the round, if you've built one canal and nobody else has built any, you'll get the four point majority marker. Then, you know, later in the game, if somebody builds three in the next round and they have the majority at the end of the round, they get the four point bonus as well. Uh, so it's kind of interesting that that the majorities kind of continue to have presence even after they've been claimed. 
So, Definitely. you know, you, you might be, you know, even if you've got it, you might want to keep up the pace to make sure nobody else is able to get it. Or you might say, okay, that's cool. Now I'm going to like move on to other things. And yeah. I think it's fun that the game kind of allows that. And the, the points are meaningful without being the game. They, yeah. they could have been over present if they gave eight points each or something. Um, but I think they're really, that's an example of the game being developed really well in that they, you feel them, you want them, but you don't feel like you're losing if you can't get them because of how the game plays out. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I, I think the same with the canal scoring. If you're the first person to build all your canals, even beyond the majority, you'll get a, a statue tile. And if you're the first person to do it, I think you get like, depends on the player count, but something like 11 points in a five player game. And the next person gets nine and the person after that seven. And, you know, it feels like the perfect amount of points where like when it happens, you're like, Oh shit. <laughs> like That's a lot of points, uh, but it's not the game by itself. And you have to work hard and spend a lot of resources to get there. Totally. Uh, so, so you pay a big opportunity cost. So I, I agree. Um, as crazy and chaotic, uh, and sometimes just like you just get a failed game, right? That you don't, you can't do anything. Uh, you're not in it just based on pure luck. Despite that, like you can see that this game was developed incredibly well. Definitely. Too. And it's kind of interesting to have both of those, you know, the crazy swinginess and that you can see the incredible development work in the game to be within one game. And I think that's something that makes it like really unique. Uh, and special to me well put all right so let's end our discussion here uh it kind of changed it up we've started here in the beginning and i, I just want to like wrap up with this now so after having that discussion brendan what would you say let's maybe we can kind of come to a, a consensus on on uh the decision space of bruges overall and think about like the size from zero to 100 something we've talked about but went away from the shape the focus which is how like blurry or sharp your decision making is and then finally the quality do you want to take like yeah i think focus we haven't we should probably define and that's something i've been kind of thinking about a lot in playing games uh which is like and we probably need to dedicate a whole episode to this at some point, but like Keyflower is like a very blurry game to me. Like it feels like a game that's out of focus. Every time I'm making a decision, there's so many unknown factors to me that I don't know if I've done something good or not. Where on the other end of the spectrum would spectrum would be like a, a, a very sharp game. A clear game would be something. Uh, yeah, I was thinking like, sharp as in like the focus on like focus. a camera over it. yeah sure sure uh yeah but so so very clear would be a game that's like perfect information right i yep. put my my knight here in chess to fork your rook and king and i know for sure like you know that is a, gonna have a good outcome definitely i i love that and i definitely think we shouldn't dedicate a whole episode what we talk about to it at some point and it especially we've we've been playing around with that idea a lot too and we've used other language like does this game have decision bumpers too like how 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 much is it like forcing you down a specific path slash how blurry or open is it and i think that's really interesting 
Um, but to stick with Bruges, we'll sort of take that little lens out here. I think in terms of size, this is a really big decision space. Uh, the decision space in the box is massive. The potential decisions that can exist in the game are huge. In any given game, it's still quite large, but it's not every potential decisions that can exist. And that's what makes it so replayable. That's really cool. You mentioned too, in terms of shape and type, I completely agree. It's like punctuated dynamic. You start the game with resources and you can go up on your first turn. You can go down pretty quickly. Uh, and the games can take wildly different shapes depending on the decisions you make. Um, I think it's like, it starts very blurry. I talked about like a fire hose of choices, but I think as the game goes on, it's sort of this like perfect, perfect amount of like, it's not totally sharp. It's never completely There's enough obvious. output randomness that yep. it's never going to be perfectly sharp. Exactly. And that can be really nice for this type of game because then you don't have to labor over decisions. You can just trust that it's close enough to the right decision and the randomness might kick you in the right direction. And I would say for me, in terms of quality, like it's so fun. The decisions it offers are just really fun decisions. And there's interesting decisions too, but I was just shocked how fun the decisions consistently felt. Totally. Yeah, I I, I agree with everything you said. I think that for me, the size, it's almost like a 50 on the nose. If you think mm. of like 100 being like infinite choice to meaningless and zero being rock, paper, scissors, right? Because like there are infinite possibilities in this like game. But in like the, I think like to me, this is like the felt calling card is that mm. like on your turn, uh, the structure are so clear and concise that it takes what's like an infinite amount of choice and it puts it into like a manageable size to think through. Totally. I, I think we both agree on shape focus. I feel like, I feel like this is definitely on the sharp edge of things. Like I don't feel as though, uh, I, I can't understand the impact of my choices, but it's yeah. pulled back just enough by the output randomness to where it's like, I generally know that I'm making a good decision uh, in the game after playing as much as I have, but uh, the randomness is always going to be out there. The chance that people have uh, certain cards that could disrupt me is always going to be out there. So it's just pulled back from being anything, uh, even approaching perfect information. I'll put it like, if, if we have a little uh, poll bar uh, in, in our Instagram app, it's like the 75% sharpness. <laughs> Interesting. Nice, nice, nice. And yeah, quality. I mean, I just think I, I gave this game a 10. So I think you all know how I feel about that. So can we close on this question, actually, Jake? If I said, do you want to, we're going to meet up. We're going to play one, one of these games. Would you like to play Castles of Burgundy? Would you like to play Bruges? Or would you like to play Grand Austria Hotel? Which just gonna, is it going to be a two-player game? It's going to be a two-player game, and then we're going to play a four-player game on a different day. I would say if, if we are going to play a two-player game, oh, man, this is a little easy. I'm, I'm honestly like, I'm going to throw out right off the bat Grand Austria Hotels not making the cut on this list. Even it's doing though the same stuff. It's just it not doing, doing it quite as well. Stuff. I, I, yeah, and it's a game I love. I want to say uh, a two-player game. I'm gonna go Carpe Diem. I think that's actually a game that like really sings at two. Interesting. Uh, and it's a game I've been continuing to play and, and appreciating more and more. Uh, 
And 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 then at four, we got Bruce. We got the expansions playing over a table. I would never pass up that opportunity. I'm gonna go Bruges at four. Nice, interesting. So I'm all over Castles of Burgundy at two, and I'm I'm at the table with you for Bruges at four. That's awesome. Our list of games when we finally get together is gonna be we're gonna be able to like build a uh, a pillar of a house. Well, it won't. It won't be Bruce that we're playing because this gets like a, it's out of print. It's like a grail game for people. Yeah. And like, you're looking at like $300 if you want this oh. and the expansion. Uh, but if, if this sounds intriguing to you, don't go spend $300. Definitely do check it out on yukata.de where you can play it for free. Uh, you can hop in our Discord and play it for free with us. I would always be delighted. I will never turn down a game of Bruce. That's a guarantee um and do perhaps look into hamburg i think maybe uh that would be the game we would we would try out given the chance brendan definitely that sounds great jake and if you are interested in coming and continuing this discussion in our discord please do you'll find the discord in the show notes the community there is vibrant there's always games firing off of games we've mentioned on the podcast and just games that are on board game arena or yukata or other places where you can play games. So if you're looking for games to play, uh, check out our Discord and then interact with us on Twitter if you have a question or just a little bit of feedback. And also check out our blog on BoardGameGeek. We're so excited that the audience continues to grow for Decision Space. And if you're a fan, please share it with someone. We'd love to continue to grow from here. Absolutely. Brendan, thank you so much for making time. Go get some sleep. (laughs) Thank you, Jake. Absolutely. Uh, So good talking with you. Likewise. Have a good week, Jake. You too. Take care. Bye, everyone. Bye. You are now exiting the decision space. Thanks for listening. Please take care and enjoy the rest of your game.